Right. Welcome, everyone. We've been having some technical difficulties today, but I'm hoping everyone is finding the right meeting to be in joining us now. Um, just a reminder, please keep your microphone muted and your video off unless you are wanting to ask a question at the end. Um, also, we do have closed captioning available. Um, and then to ask questions, you can raise your hand or type questions in the chat. Um, for announcements, next week's seminar is um, Sean Hutchins. He's a intern, one of the interns here at the USGS. Um, and for other announcements, you can go to the internal site for a list of those. There are various meetings going on that may be of interest to you. Um, our speaker today is Christiana, Christiana Colatini. And we're excited to have him here to speak with us. And I'll hand it over now to David Lochner, who will be introducing him. Okay, thanks, Tamara. Can you hear me? I think. Yes, we can hear you. Yes, okay. So uh, it's my pleasure this morning to introduce Cristiano Colatini. Uh, he received his PhD at Perugia University in 2002, uh, studying, among other things, the uh, tectonics of the Apennines with Professor Barchi. Uh, and at the same time, he, he spent uh, a bit of time at, uh, in New Zealand with Rick Sipson, Sipson studying with him. Um, in 2004, Cristiano became an assistant professor at Perugia, and now he is a full professor at La Sapienza University di Roma. Uh, so some 10 years ago, Cristiano received a European Research Council Consolidator Grant to develop a state-of-the-art rock mechanics apparatus that actually I think he's going to be showing some of this in his talk. The, the machine is called Brava, and uh, I think he can explain what that stands for. Uh, but uh, he also created a research group at INGV in Rome to study uh, earthquake processes. Now, Brava is based on a Dietrich-style double direct shear apparatus, uh, but the exceptional thing about it is it's housed inside a pressure vessel to allow true triaxial shear and normal stress as well as confining pressure control and also pore pressure control. So it's a unique apparatus and I'm very interested as a lab person to see the results from this. In addition, over the years, Cristiano has published a number of important studies related to earthquakes and fault mechanics. Uh, for example, he's demonstrated that small amounts of weak alteration minerals localized in shear fabrics in fault zones uh, can have a very significant influence in lowering shear strength. He's also done a lot of work on carbonate-hosted faults, since uh, this is uh, pertinent to the Apennines, where he studies earthquakes. Um, most recently, he's been involved in measurements of velocity precursors in laboratory stick-slip and slow-slip events. So uh, I have to say his experience as both a field geologist and a laboratory researcher gives him an important perspective in understanding earthquake source mechanics. So today, uh, Cristiano will be talking about structural, frictional, and fluid flow heterogeneities of crustal faults and implications for slip behavior. Okay, Cristiano. Okay, uh, thanks, thanks a lot for the 
the nice uh, introduction and uh, for giving me the possibility to to share with you our data set. And can you see my screen? Yes, we can. Okay, so I, I can start. And in in this talk, I, I would like to uh, summarize the results we have obtained in the last 15 years to characterize structural, frictional, and fluid flow heterogeneitism within crustal folds. And then in the second part, I would like to uh, discuss some implications of our results for fault sleep behavior. What I'm going to present you today is the result of my collaboration with Marco Scuderi at La Sapienza University, Telemaco Tesei, now in Padova University, Cecilia Viti from Siena University, and Chris Maron, that is uh, now both in uh, Sapienza and at Penn State. So the question, the first question I would like to address is, this one, if we consider a fault like this one, what is the shear stress or the differential stress required to make this fault move? And I would like to do an historical reconstruction on this topic. So Anderson studying, building on his work from 1905, in 1951, he published this paper saying that uh, on the assumption that faults follow brittle fractures on the Coulomb-Moore criterion, he defined three classes of faulting and their orientation within the stress field. So he put the basis for the, the first fault strength evaluation. And at that time, field geologists going into the field and observing that a significant amount of the formation was accommodated along sub-horizontal truss like this one, they posed the question of how can truss faulting be active for hundreds of kilometers along sub-horizontal planes. And in uh, 1959, Haber and Ruby proposed that fluid overpressure trapped along the fault zone can significantly reduce the effective normal stress and therefore allowing fault slip for low values of the shear stress. But what about friction? Also friction here is uh, quite relevant. In uh, 1978, Wiley presented this extensive data set of a frictional measurement of four drugs. And it proposed that at first approximation, friction is almost independent of the rock type and is in the range 0 0.6, 0 0.85. This is known also as the Bailey's flow for friction and the high citations that received this manuscript testified the importance of this work for rock mechanics or fault mechanics. However, how can Bailey's friction obtained from laboratory experiments using centimetric or millimetric samples be applicable to seismogenic force with dimensions of kilometers or larger? A first test for Bailey's friction can be obtained by frictional fault reactivation theory. So if in this equation we put the shear stress and the normal stress as a function of maximum and minimum principal stresses, we end up with this equation that tells us how easy it is to reactivate a fault as a function of the reactivation angle theta r 
that is the angle that the fold makes with the sigma one direction. Here, the function has a minimum. So for these theta r angles, we have got the optimally oriented force for frictional reactivation and moving away, it is more and more difficult to reactivate structures. And for these theta r angles, we are in the field of severely misoriented structures for frictional reactivation meaning that from a mechanical point of view, it's easier to form a new optimally oriented force instead of reactivating a pre-existing one and high values of theta r. And this asymptote is the frictional lockup angle that for a friction equal to 0.6 is expected at 60 degrees. So to test this, we have constructed the histogram of active fold dips. And to do that, we have selected intracontinental deep slip earthquakes with the magnitude greater than 5.5. So ruptures that cut across almost the entire seismogenic layer. We selected the dip from the focal mechanisms and we worked out the ambiguity of the true rupture planes in the focal mechanisms by using auxiliary techniques. For example, for this focal mechanism, the southwest dipping plane is the true rupture plane because it shows positive correlations with aftershock distribution or with surface breaks. So these are the histogram of the dip of the active uh, ruptures in extensional and in compressional environments. And you can see that there are no ruptures in the field of severely misoriented structures, assuming a friction coefficient at the bottom of the Bailey's range, so a friction coefficient equal to 0.6. So this data set is consistent with crustal faults, crustal and seismogenic faults, having a friction equal to 0.6. Another test for bilis friction can be obtained by deep borehole stress measurements showing that the cross is controlled by critically stressed faults that follow frictional fault reactivation theory with a friction coefficient equal to 0.6. So, these two data sets point to faults controlled by bilis frictions, or in other words, strong faults that in some cases can become transiently weak due to trapped fluid pressures within the structures. And this is the typical strength profile for a strong fault, high shear stress or high differential stress. And the typical fault zone structure is represented by a fault core where the deformation is affected by cataclastic process with localization surrounded by a damaged zone where the rocks are fractured. And along these structures, there are some um, fault rocks that are diagnostic of ancient earthquakes, like for example, pseudotachylite or decomposed carbonates for limestone hosted um, fault zones. So we are in this historical reconstruction at the end of the last century, beginning of this one. And at that time, the, the Sant'Andreas fault was considered an exception because the fault is moving at high angle to the maximum compressive principal stress. And so the shear stress along the fault should be low. 
And the weakness of the San Andreas Fault has been proved at least for at Safford for the creeping session of the San Andreas Fault because uh, the fault rocks collected at three kilometers of that show a friction below or close to, to 0 0.2. I think that together with the San Andreas Faults, there are plenty of weak faults within the seismogenic layer. And for weak faults, I mean faults with friction well below Bailey's friction. And in the following, I'm going to support this statement by showing you example weak faults in different tectonic environments, reaction softening, long-term reaction softening, and then some frictional measurement on these structures. So this is one example. This is the Carbonera's fault in Spain. And the fault is characterized by this uh, one kilometer wide fault core where interconnected networks of phallosilicate like this here surround more competent lithologies by like mica schist or like dolostones. The fault zone here accommodated 40 kilometers of displacement and the exhumation is between two and four kilometers. So here we are looking at a fault structure representative of a two, four kilometers of crustal depth. This is another example, a trust fault in the Pyrenees. And the fault zone consists of this foliated six meter thick fault core made of elite and chlorite surrounded surrounded by more competent lithologies like the limestone in the hanging wall and the sandstone in the foot wall. So the shear zone is rich in elite and chloride. The exhumation is from seven to six kilometers of depth. This is another truss in uh, Elba Island in Italy. The shear zone is uh, 200 meters thick and is uh, characterized by these interconnected networks of um, phallosilicate of serpentinite surrounding more competent ultramafic materials. Here, the fault was active at 250 degrees and two, three kilobar of uh, pressure. This is a normal fault in the Apennines where these uh, foliated networks of um, phallosilicate, and you can see the details here, surround more competent limestone affected by fracturing and some localization. So together with, uh, with the strong faults within the seismogenic layer, there are other phallosilicate-rich faults where the fault zone structure is represented by these interconnected networks of phallosilicates. And these structures have been documented in different tectonic environments, strike slip, compressional, extensional, and from different crustal depths. So are quite widespread within the seismogenic layer. Now, I would like to document some reaction softening, so long-term weakening process occurring along this fault. And to do that on a foliated and phallosilicate-rich fault like this one, to capture the, the onset of um, strain weakening along the fault, we have to go in the low-strain domain where it is possible to have an idea of the protolith. And microstructural studies on this rock show that the fault 
is characterized by fracturing, so cataclastic process with uh, some precipitation of a uh, calcite and talc along veins. In other veins, there's deposition of silica, indicating silica-rich fluid circulation along the shear zone. And so for this structure, we propose that the dolomite interact with silica-rich fluids to form talc and calcite. And in the high strain domain, where the fold zone is uh, mature, we observe these interconnected networks of a phallosilicate and in particular talc and the sigmoids of the calcite, the truncation of the calcite crystal and the precipitation of the talc in strain shadows are indicator of a dissolution and precipitation process to form this interconnected network where much much of the slip occurs by frictional sliding along the phallosilicate foliage. This is another example of fluid-assisted fault weakening, and so dissolution and precipitation process along this uh, fault in New Zealand promoted a foliated fault core rich in chloride and in muscovite. This is another example of, from uh, the carbonates of uh, the Apennines, where starting from a protolith where the weak mineral phases, clay, the heavy grays are present in uh, a subordinate amount. With the onset of the formation, there's clay concentration on stylolites. And for a mature shear zone like this, sleep occurs by the inter sleep along the interconnected networks of phallosilicate as also imaged here via the TEM. So to, to summarize this uh, long-term weakening process that we observe along phallosilicate ridge faults, at the onset of the formation, the, the fault accommodates slip mostly by fracturing and cataclastic process that increases permeability, favoring the influx of hydrous fluids into the fault zone. Fluids react with the fine grain cataclasite, promoting the dissolution of the strong and granular mineral phases and this precipitation of a phallosilicate to form these interconnected networks where most of the slip occurs by frictional sliding along the phallosilicate foliage. Now, how common is this fault weakening? I would say it is quite common within the seismogenic layer because it has been documented from different protolites like carbonates, schist, sandstone, granites, ultramafic rocks with the replacement of strong and granular mineral phases like calcite, quartz, feldspar, olivine, and pyroxene with weak phallosilicate, torque, elite, smectite, muscovite, chrysotile, and lizardite. And this evolution we observe in the field has been also observed in laboratory experiments, mainly at Utrecht University. And the mechanical data have been used to uh, construct uh, a microphysical model to describe the rheology of granular and phallosilicate mixture. And at shallow crustal level, the deformation is mainly cataclastic, and so we are within the Bailey's uh, rule. Then uh, when um, 
dissolution and precipitation process start to be active, there's the, the frictional viscous regime. And when the phallosilicates start to form and interconnect the networks, slip is accommodated by frictional sliding and the rheology is controlled by the frictional sliding along the phallosilicate. So to constrain this uh, fault weakness, we have to characterize the strength of a frictional sliding along the phallosilicate folium. And so now I'm gonna show you some frictional measurements on these uh, phallosilicate rich faults. To capture the, the role of fabric, the, the frictional sliding along the phallosilicate foliae, we thought that the, the traditional uh, experiments on uh, powders uh, are not able to capture the, the frictional sliding along the phallosilicate folia, in particular when the, the phallosilicate are present in a, a subordinate amount within the fault rock. So to, to take into account the role of fabric in fault weakness, we have collected foliated and intact rocks. We cut them in order to obtain wafers with dimension of five by five centimeters and thickness of one centimeters. And then uh, we did some uh, friction experiments on the solid foliated wafers that we sheared, continuing the sense of shear imposed to them by natural process. And we tested also the, the powders. So in this way, we test the, the frictional properties of fault rocks, having the same amount of uh, mineralogy, but with a completely different fabric, solid foliated versus powdered. For this first test, we uh, the phallosilicate were present in a subordinate amount, and we did this um, uh, test at Penn State University at Chris Maron lab. So we used a biaxial apparatus uh, where two identical rock layers are sandwiched within three forcing blocks and during the experiment we apply an horizontal force that is maintained constant so the normal stress is constant and then we advance the vertical ram inducing a shear stress and so we can measure the friction of the material. For this test we observe that each rock type plot along a line in agreement with a uh, frictional uh, sliding uh, behavior, but the solid foliated wafers are much weaker than the powdered analog. In particular, the powders have friction close to Biley's values, whereas the solid foliated wafers have friction that is 0 0.2, 0 0.3 lower than the powdered analog. Why these differences? Let's have a look at the microstructures. This is the microstructure for a powdered fault rock at a 50 MPa of normal stress after three centimeters of displacement with a friction equal to 0.52. We can see that starting from the initial grain size, the deformation is mainly accommodated by grain size and some localization resulting in a friction close to Biley's friction. For the same material, but for the solid foliated wafers at the same boundary condition, 
we observe that most of the slip is accommodated along the pre-existing phallosilicate networks and slip occurs by frictional sliding along the phallosilicate folia with some kinking and folding. So after uh, doing, developing this uh, type of uh, um, way to test uh, the frictional properties, we adopted this uh, wafer approach to study other phallosilicate-rich folds. And this is uh, uh, the data set from the uh, Monte Cocerno Trust in the Apennines, a uh, trust fold above the smectite light transition. And so the uh, smectite rich foliation show a friction equal to 0 0.6. This is another data set from uh, the Perdido Trust in the Pyrenees. And this fault is below the smectite elite transition. And this uh, elite rich shear zone show a friction equal to 0 0.16. These are frictional measurements for the, the moonlight fault in New Zealand. The chloride rich portion has a friction equal to 0 0.24. And the um, muscovite rich fault portion has a friction equal to 0 0.19. These are uh, measurements on uh, serpentinites uh, because these uh, serpentinites rich shear zone show the faults that, that are coated in uh, some of them in lizardite and with a friction below 0 0.2 and the slip occurs by frictional sliding along the 001 basal plane of the lizardite and for other portions that are rich in a chrysotile or polygonal serpentine, the friction is again below 0 0.2 and most of the slip occurs by frictional sliding along the long axis of the chrysotile fibers. So this is a wrap up of the frictional properties of a foliated and phallosilicate-rich natural folds. In this data set, we have inserted our data on um, uh, frictional tests on wafers, plus we have integrated uh, with uh, uh, frictional measurements on uh, folds uh, using the powdered approach, uh, and we have inserted the, the um, falls for which the percent of the weak mineral phases is greater than 40-50% because we have seen that when the, the phallosilicate dominate the fold zone structure, uh, after shearing the uh, interconnectivity of the uh, phallosilicate uh, developed quite um, soon after some strain and so there's not too much difference between wafers or uh, powdered uh, fault rocks. These data here in pink are experiments on uh, dry samples. And so for this pink, further weakening is expected at the presence of water as um, well uh, documented in numerous uh, uh, paper from uh, the USGS Rock Mechanics Lab. So our data sets show that uh, foliated and phallosilicate-rich folds have got a friction that is well below the Bialis range and is in the range 0 0.1, 0 0.3.
So far, we have characterized the steady state friction and we can use it to define the shear stress or the differential stress required for reactivating a fault. But upon reactivation, what is the fault slip behavior? To characterize the fault slip behavior, we can use a rate and state friction approach. So use the rate and state equation coupled with the stiffness of the, of the apparatus and uh, we can do some velocity steps. So if we increase the sliding velocity from uh, V0 to, to V, we can have uh, a different evolution in friction. So we have got a direct effect and then we have got a decay to a new steady state. And the D sub C is the critical slip distance. That is the distance that the experimental fault has to slide in order to renew the, the contact that controls friction. So when friction increases upon a velocity step, so when this A minus B value is a positive, this is a velocity strengthening behavior that define a stable sliding and fault creep. When friction decreases upon a velocity step, this is a velocity weakening behavior that is a condition required to develop a frictional instability. And we have seen that uh, for granular fault rocks characterized by high or bilis friction, the in our experiment, we have confirmed what uh, uh, it has been shown uh, uh, in uh, several uh, seminal uh, papers like this here, that uh, with increasing strain and with localization along narrow principal slipping zones, there's a transition from a velocity strengthening to a velocity weakening behavior for granular mineral phases. For the phallosilicates, we observed that slip occurs by frictional sliding along the phallosilicate foliar, resulting in a, a velocity strengthening behavior that becomes more and more velocity strengthening with increasing sliding velocities. So for defoliated and phallosilicate rich natural folds that are weak, these, these structures are also characterized by a velocity strengthening behavior. There are some uh, velocity weakening at low sliding velocities, but uh, the, the dominant uh, behavior is a velocity strengthening and becomes more and more velocity strengthening with increasing sliding velocity, at least at low sliding velocity that we can test uh, with a biaxial or a triaxial apparatus. I mean, sliding velocities below 200, 300 microns per second. So let's try to, to summarize uh, in one single figure what I have presented so far. The integration of outcrops, microstructural and laboratory data point to the heterogeneous structural and frictional nature of crustal faults. So, along fault portions where fluid rock interactions have been not efficient or have been absent, the fault zone structure is characterized by a fault core and a damaged zone. Within the fault core, cataclastic processes promote a, 
a bilis friction and grain size reduction and localization favors the transition from a velocity strengthening to a velocity weakening behavior. Along other fault zone structures where fluid rock interactions have been efficient, interconnected and phallosilicate-rich network develop, and frictional sliding along the phallosilicate foliage results in a friction well below the bilis range and a velocity strengthening behavior. Now, we have seen that the fabric play an important role in frictional properties of rocks. Now we would like to test also the role of fabric in fluid flow properties. And to do that, we have developed some experiments using the biaxial apparatus within the pressure vessel. And so the forcing blocks to run experiments with fluids are characterized by conduits. And so from the upstream intensifier, the fluids enter into the central for forcing block through the rock layers into the side blocks and down to the downstream intensifier. The double direct assembly is jacked and it is positioned within the pressure vessel. The vessel is a filled. I've got should have a video here. I don't know how to to make it run. Sorry, let's try if I can do. Okay. So we fill the vessel with the, with the oil for confining pressure. We apply an, a normal stress, a shear stress, and we allow fluid flow into, into the vessel, in this, into the vessel and the experimental fault as well. And in this uh, uh, experiment, we can run at different level of fluid pressure, or we can run with a fluid flow in order to measure permeability. These are the intensifiers for fluid flow, and this is the, the intensifier for the confining oil. So here in uh, this data set, we have tested a granular mineral phase like quartz, and then we increased the amount of shale to quartz. So here we have got 70% quartz, 30% of shale, and here we have got 100% of shale. In these experiments, we observed a reduction in friction with increasing the clay content, and we also observed a transition from velocity strengthening to velocity weakening, sorry, to, from velocity weakening to velocity strengthening behavior. And at the same time, we also observe a market reduction in permeability. Here, we have got quite high values of permeability, 10 to the power of minus 14, quite high values, at least for this uh, low effect in normal stress. And then with increasing the clay content, we observe this dramatic reduction in permeability, 10 to the minus 18. So, the hydromechanical properties of granular mineral phases are quite different from the foliated and phallosilicate-rich rocks. 
So what is the question we would like to address with these uh, final slides is uh, what is the sleep behavior during fluid pressure stimulation of a granular versus a solid foliated phallosilicate? And to address this question, we have uh, run some uh, creep test. And in particular, we advanced we apply a normal stress, then we advance the vertical ram in order to induce a shear, a shear fabric within the experimental fold. Then we stop advancing the vertical ram and we allowed from some relaxation. And then we switch the mode of controlling the vertical piston from displacement to load. And we fix at a constant shear stress that can be 80% or 90% of the steady state shear stress. And then we started pressurizing the fold and look at the fold sleep behavior. So this is the evolution of the stress state along the fold during uh, this uh, procedure. This is the failure envelope that we constructed by standard frictional tests. This is the a running phase where we achieve a steady state shear stress, the relaxation we fix in load control, and then we started pressurizing the fault and observing for the fault sleep behavior approaching the failure envelope. So these are the, the summary of the data for the granular mineral phases versus the, the foliated phallosilicate. So for, in this case, the granular mineral phase is calcite. For calcite, that is a slightly velocity strengthening, we observe that uh, during pressurization, the sleep velocity increases exponentially. And so it develops a dynamic instability. Our interpretation for the development of this dynamic instability along a fold that is slightly velocity strengthening is that the weakening produced by fluid pressurization is greater than the velocity strengthening behavior or the slightly velocity strengthening behavior of the material promoting this dynamic instability. For the phallosilicate rich folds, we observe that upon pressurization, there's this uh, acceleration, self-deceleration, acceleration, self-deceleration, acceleration, then the sleep velocity is maintained constant, and then we observe this uh, accelerated creep not evolving into a dynamic instability. And for this accelerated creep, we mean that um, the fault um, stays at 100, 200 microns per second for 15, 20 minutes, and then we have to stop the experiments because we finished the displacement we can achieve for the experimental fault. So for this accelerated creep, not evolving into a dynamic instability for the clay-rich material, our interpretation is that the weakening uh, induced by fluid pressurization is counteracted by the strong velocity strengthening behavior of the material also with negative B, and so inhibiting the development of a dynamic instability of this type of exponential uh, evolution in the sleep velocity. 
Okay, now I would like to conclude by uh, discussing about the implications of our data set for false sleep behavior. So, the velocity strengthening behavior that we have documented for a large number of weak faults can contribute in explaining the observation that creeping subduction zones are weaker than locked subduction zones as inferred from the inversion of an earthquake moment tensor. The velocity strengthening behavior for a large number of weak faults can contribute in explaining the geodetic observation that a seismic creep is common and sometimes prevalent within the seismogenic depth range, as for example, observed in central Peru megatrust with a portion, significant portion characterized by very low coupling. In addition, the, the variety or the spectrum of false sleep behavior that has been documented in different tectonic environments, like, for example, this uh, accelerated and self-deceleration, acceleration and self-deceleration associated to the slow sleep in the eco-ranging subduction zone at shallow crustal level or this long period, long duration events during hydraulic stimulation of um, shales or this accelerated creep following um, hydraulic fracturing and this accelerated creep within shales trigger this microseismicity that then generate a magnitude 4.1 on the carbonates. This uh, behavior, this spectrum of false sleep behavior, our data showed that um, fault rock fabric and its implication for frictional and fluid flow properties plays an important role for this documented spectrum of false sleep behavior for tectonic faults. And with this, um, I would like to, to thank you for, for your attention and for listening to me. Thank you. Right. Thank you, Christiana, for your presentation. Um, we now have time for questions. Um, just a reminder, you can um, either raise your hand or type your question into the chat, and we will either ask that, read that off for you, or you can go ahead and unmute yourself to ask that question. So again, Cristiano, thank you for a great talk. We were, I really enjoyed listening to it. Um, to give people a second to ask any questions they have. Yes, I was wondering with comparing um, the foliated samples to the granular of the tests that you're doing there, are you looking at all at how those fabrics change during the experiments you're running? Yeah, uh, in the experiments we have done uh, so far, uh, we have uh, uh, tested, uh, we have looked at the microstructures only at the end of the experiments. We uh, we haven't, for the foliated intact rocks, uh, we uh, haven't done any any test uh, to, to observe the evolution of the fabric uh, with strain. What we have seen is that uh, in some cases during shearing, we uh, consume the weak phyllosilicate rich layers. And so we start shearing 
granular stronger material and we observe this increase in uh, friction near the end of the experiments because we are not shearing anymore on the phallosilicate layer but we are shearing uh, granular mineral phases that are stronger. Right, thank you. Um, and then Susan had a question. Your hand is raised, I believe. That was inadvertent, sorry. Oh, okay. You <laughs> yeah. right, I think there was one in the chat. Um, yes. David Lochner says, can you comment on how you would develop a kilometer wide zone when friction is low and localized? Okay, so yeah, basically in in the fault we have seen in uh, uh, in the field where uh, phallosilicate uh, uh, develop, uh, we uh, we do not see any uh, strong evidence for for extreme localization because uh, since uh, the or at least in our interpretation the the weakness is due to the invasion of fluids into the fracturing and so uh, the, the development of, of the phallosilicate uh, uh, tend to form along these uh, interconnected networks and so yeah it's not uh, easy to find uh, a fault zone uh, structure within the phallosilicate with extreme localization because uh, is there any, sorry, it's not very polite asking you a question. Is there any evidence for strong localization within a, a phallosilicate rich falls? Um, I don't know. Does anyone, anyone can make a comment on that? No, did, my question was for, for Dave, for <laughs> David. Yeah, uh, there are more field geologists that, that could address that. I just, it, it, it's just curious to me how it, uh, the the observation that that you get these massive wide shear zones, but uh, I mean on the San Andreas it it seems like the creep is happening on very localized meter or less zones currently at least in the creeping section. So mm -hmm. where does the kilometer wide zone come from that that you're identifying in Carboneras fault and other faults like that? Mm -hmm. I I don't yeah. have an answer. Uh, I don't um, my, my, yeah, my interpretation for the, the Carboneras fault is that the default is a one kilometer wide, but uh, the, the phallosilicate rich horizons are a meter or a couple of meter thick. And so, yeah, you have got a slip along these uh, phallosilicate rich portions. And then, uh, yeah, also, for for the Sant Andreas uh, at Seifold, uh, there's there are two, if I will remember, two portions that uh, showed uh, the formation. So, yeah, in my view, along these structures, uh, slip occurs along uh, multiple uh, layers uh, reaching phallosilicates. Okay, thank you. Um, and then Steve Hickman had a question. Hi, Cristiano. Great talk. Very interesting and nicely delivered. Thank you. Um, so I had a question about your jacketed double direct shear experiments where you saw the uh, use with the calcite experiments. You saw basically the intrinsic slight velocity strengthening 
But the dynamic runaway, there you go, dynamic runaway that you inferred was due to fluid pressurization. Do you have any idea how that fluid pressurization would occur? Would it be thermal pressurization, pore collapse? What are your thoughts about the source of the pressure, the fluid pressurization that's sufficient to override the intrinsic strengthening in the calcite? Yeah. <clears throat> In this type of experiments, uh, we are in load control, and so the shear stress is fixed and cannot drop. And when we pressurize the fault, uh, so in this way, the fault is really prone to, to, to develop, uh, to, to accelerate. And so when we, we start increasing fluid pressure, we push the stress state uh, beyond uh, the, the failure envelope and then when the fault passed the the failure envelope uh, we still uh, pushing fluids on the fault and then uh, e the result is uh, due to the pressurization the increasing fluid pressure and the reduction of the effective normal stress uh, and we don't think there's um, any uh, thermal pressurization uh, process uh, active uh, during uh, this uh, uh, type of experiments is only due to the increase in fluid pressure that reduces the effective normal stress in a condition that very very prone to develop an instability okay so you're, you're close to in, so you're close to instability but you keep increasing the fluid pressure externally yeah. and that okay so it's not a transient pressurization within the fault zone as the pressure is applied that way yeah, you can see here we, we do this step uh, or one megapascal per hour or 0 0.2 megapascal every uh, 12 minutes. And so we increase pressurizing the fault uh, and we look for the sleep behavior. And so we really force uh, to 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 the fault to to develop any stability. And what is surprising is shale. Because uh, even if we force uh, to develop the instability, there's no way, if, at least at the boundary condition, we have tested for the shales to develop uh, uh, a dynamic instability because of this uh, strong, in our interpretation, this strong velocity strengthening behavior. And this seems to be consistent with some slow sleep events that have been documented during hydraulic stimulation of shales or this accelerated creep that has been documented in Canada. You know, I'm talking about uh, yeah, these uh, experiments uh, for the Canadian group uh, or these uh, low frequency events during hydraulic stimulation of, of shales. Okay. Do you, do you have any, a second part of my question? Do you have thoughts about how faults like the Hayward fault, which are fundamentally creeping, could rupture in a large earthquake based on your experiments, what the process is that would allow that dynamic runaway in a fault that otherwise is creeping? Yeah, in uh, with our approach, uh, we are uh, mostly studying the, the nucleation of, a, of an earthquake uh, within uh, different uh, rock types. And uh, in, uh, yeah, in our, data set uh, we see or for example this data set see uh, show or at least in our interpretation show that uh, it's very difficult to nucleate within uh, uh, phyllosilicate rich faults 
But at the same time, uh, there are examples like, for example, Tohoku, where a rupture nucleating in a velocity weakening material can easily propagate uh, at high velocity into uh, weak and velocity strengthening mineral phases. Like, yeah. for example, the Tohoku, or I think there are other examples showing this. So the nucleation is very difficult, but uh, propagation. Uh, we didn't test, but uh, yeah. in high velocity friction experiments, uh, yeah, it's easy. Yes, uh, we've seen that. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you. Okay. Thank you, Steve. Um, and Diane, I think you had your hand raised, but it's down now. So do you still have a question? Um, no, I was going to say something about um, in response to David's question and that it just with this, the you get a relatively two relatively narrow bands at SAFOD because it's compositionally controlled. You basically injected uh, tectonically in place serpentinite into a crustal setting and you're getting both um, uh, solution transfer processes as the ultramafic rocks are altering in the presence of crustal rocks and then you're getting these very weak clays produced as well. But that's compositionally controlled and so you get narrow zones just because of that. Yeah, I was thinking that another geological uh, situation can be when some strong and competent material tend to squeeze phallosilicate that are more ductile, like for example, unfolding within multi-competent multi material, there's the possibility in some way to, to localize the formation within, uh, within phallosilicates. Sure. But from my experience, it's not, uh, it's not very, very common. Well, no, it's just that in Northern California, we have the appropriate tectonic setting mm -hmm. environment. All right. Well, thank you again for a great talk. I'll give you a little bit of a try to give you a virtual round of applause here. Um, and thanks everyone for your questions. We are going to conclude the formal seminar now and the recording, um, but if anyone would like to stick around for as long as Cristiano is available to discuss a little bit more in a casual environment, um, we'd be welcome to continue to use this team's event to chat in. So thank you again for attending um, and we'll see everyone next week.